welcome fellow traveller to the Tent Talks podcast where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social and political imagination. My guest today on the podcast is Lisa Sharon Harper. Lisa is the founder of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. She's an excellent storyteller, as you will hear. She's a speaker, a trainer, a consultant, and the author of some critically acclaimed books, including The Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right. Her work has appeared on every single media outlet you could care to mention, including CNN, NPR, Fox News, and others. Harper previously served as the Chief of Church Engagement for Sojourners, where she led campaigns on immigration reform and racial justice. I spoke with Lisa about her upcoming book, Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. First thing I saw, Lisa, is your books, and I'm going to ask you, like, what books have you got a bookmark in right now? This is this is the question oh. I want to find out. What what have you got a bookmark in right now that you're really into? Wow. Well, what books do I need to bookmark in? There's lots. I tend to read a lot of books all at once. <laughs> yeah. And same. you know, depending on what I need at the time. But just recently, um, the book that came in the mail that I'm most excited about is the 1619 Project. Oh, brilliant! And so I got that book, and it's not even on the shelf. It's like right here, right next to me. So <laughs> it's a good reference book. I'm excited for that. Um, also, I have another book that also isn't on the shelf, but it's actually upstairs on my bedroom table that came from Randy Woodley. It's his book, Becoming Rooted, which I highly recommend you talk to him about. Um, this book just came out and it is, it's simple. It's basically a devotional for people who hate church <laughs> or who are or even non-Christian completely. But it's about how do we become rooted again, rooted in our, in our people's stories, in the land, um, rooted in, in the truth. Because, you know, Randy is indigenous and in his indigenous understanding of, of Christian theology, he, what he says is, and what I, I actually believe, is that the indigenous way is actually the way back to shalom, to harmony, the way back to balance, the way back to radical reconnection to all things, which is what we were created for on the first page of the Bible. Um, so I would highly recommend his book, Becoming Do you know Mark Rooted. Charles? I'm sure you know Mark Charles. Oh, I absolutely know Mark Charles, where we go way back. <laughs> I was on staff with University back when he was a student. Oh, in the wow. At UCLA. Yeah, yeah. Because Mark was telling me about, like, he says, you know, when the settlers showed up trying to bring Jesus, they found a bunch of people that were closer to Jesus than they ever, than the settlers ever were. You know, they, they basically had to beat Jesus out of people. But yeah, the indigenous people were living much closer to the way of Jesus than anything these That's right. Jesus was an indigenous person. Jesus was a colonized person. Jesus was a brown person being colonized by white Europe, by Rome. And not only white Europe, but a white nationalist, a white supremacist empire. And so when we look at this, when we as people who have been colonized and enslaved by white supremacist empires, look at the scripture, we see Jesus. And we see ourselves 
And so we don't need to change and warp what the meanings of the scripture are. We don't look at Luke 4 and say, oh, that means spiritually oppressed. No, no we it, get it. Yeah. We understand what he was talking about. Poor means poor. You know, oppressed means oppressed. That's yeah. right. That's exactly right. That's exactly it. right. And we see things that may not have been seen when viewed through the lens of empire, yeah. because what empire exists to protect empire. So they're not going. And so what they did when they took that scripture, that yeah. brown colonized scripture, they interpreted it from the halls of empire and then imposed really the colonization of the text itself. They said, we are now the ones who get to determine what is orthodox interpretation of this text. Yeah. And that's something else. And that's something else that yeah. this brown colonized text, every single writer of it was a brown oh, colonized person. Yeah. Or on, or in fear of that, yeah. now gets interpreted in the halls of empire. Yeah, and if you don't agree with them, then you are unorthodox. I just think that that is like well, the, I, I, the closest you get to a white European in the New Testament is Pilate, and he killed right. Jesus. That's right. That's what I love to say. I I, yeah. I first tweeted that on Twitter. I don't know, maybe about a year ago, and I got all this pushback, and people were like, "Well, actually, we went back, we took a look, and." Of course. Yeah. <laughs> of course. Actually, the yeah. indigenous story is, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself now, because the indigenous story is part of your story as well, Lisa, because of the, the book Fortune here, which was a real delight to, to have discovered. So tell us about Fortune. Why This is the reason for the season. We're here because of the book Fortune. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank I mean, you this so is much. a book 30 years in the making, a whole lifetime in the making, this book. Yeah, literally. Literally. It took 30 years of research. Um, and of course, that was accelerated in the last decade as well, also because of technology and um, the invention of DNA, um, which, of course, existed back in the 1990s when I was doing a lot of this research, when I started a lot of the research. But, you know, the technology wasn't there. So now you have Ancestry.com and Ancestry DNA and you have um, 23andMe and my, you know, everybody, everybody's got a DNA thing. And so as an African-American I was able to skip over and have been able to skip over the, the brick wall that comes with um, documentation because of enslavement um, and be able to make some connections or at least see direction for my family, locations and family clusters that were not there, were not possible just 10, 15 years ago. Um, and so fortune traces 10 generations of my family story back to 1680, 82 was the first person um, that, that came to this land who was not from this land. Um, her name was Ma Maudlin McGee, uh, Magdalene Maudlin, depending on, on where you are in the world and speaking it. But Maudlin McGee was an Ulster Scott um, woman, and she was married, married to George McGee. And, but when she got here in 1682, uh, only about four years later, an African man named Sambo and his name was actually Sambo um, from Senegal, um, was brought over on a slave ship. And that slave ship docked in 1686. And the reason we know it is because it's the only slave ship that comes in in a, in a course of years into Maryland. Uh, and he was born at a time that he couldn't have come on an earlier one. So we know that he was on that, we believe he was on that one. Um, and so uh, one year later, they had a girl, they had a little girl, Maudlin and Sambo had a little girl that they named Fortune. And Fortune was a mixed race girl. And as a result, she, her flesh bore the brunt of 
the violence of the very first race laws in Maryland. And as a result, those race laws really shaped the course of her life and the course of three generations and every generation after that. Um, because those race laws were crafted specifically to deal with the issue of white women marrying um, and having mixed race children with black enslaved men, African enslaved men. And um, because of course the white planters couldn't deal with that. So they were like, you can't do that. So do you know what they said? Well, they, the, the first race law in Maryland came two years after the first one in Virginia. In Virginia, the problem they were solving for was mixed race kids that were the product of white men raping their enslaved black women. Not the case in Maryland. Maryland, it was the white women marrying black men. And so what they said was any white woman who marries a black man shall herself become enslaved to her math, to her husband's master until her husband dies. And then, and her children will be, uh, will be enslaved in perpetuity. So what they found about 10 years later is that they look up and they realize, not even 10 years, actually, I think it was like six years later, they look up and they realize that the white planters are now forcing their indentured Irish and Scott um, uh, women to marry and, um, and become pregnant by African men who were enslaved by them. Why? Because it meant free labor. I mean, they were economically driven, free labor. And so they said, wait, this Catholic you know, colony kind of clutched its pearls and said, oh, I, we didn't mean to do that. And so what did they do? They put the keys to enslavement and indenture in the hands of the church. And they said, it shall now henceforth be the role of the church to determine if someone will be indentured or enslaved. And the, and the church carried that, that function all the way through the Revolutionary War. Tell me about the, the construction. Race itself was a construction in this time. Yes. Well, well I mean, laws. there was no such thing as race until whiteness was created. And okay, whiteness was created. This. Yeah. Whiteness was created over a period of decades, but it, 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 it soon came to be and then accelerated. You can trace this back to like the 16. 50s, 1640s, 1630, a woman named Elizabeth Key was born. Um, she was born just across the river from Jamestown. And her master was an, a British citizen, English citizen. And according to English common law, you could not enslave a, an English citizen, a British citizen. And, you know, British citizens could not be enslaved, nor could fellow Christians be enslaved. So according to British law, and this was a British colony. And so what they said was in, in Virginia, the Virginia colony, they said, well, that's British law, but we really have to solve this problem because we don't know what we're going to do with all these mixed race kids. And if we, if we allow them to say that they are British citizens, as Elizabeth Key did fight in the courts to say, I'm a British citizen because I've been baptized and my father is a British citizen. And she won her case, hello. So in around 1656, she won her case. Then in 1662, just a few years later, they changed it. They decided, well, in order to save ourselves from losing a bunch of money and free labor, we're now going to change where citizenship status comes from. It no longer comes through the line of the father. It shall now henceforth come through the line of the mother. And if the mother is enslaved, therefore, then the child and the child's child and the child's child's child in perpetuity shall be enslaved. That's how they did it in Virginia. In Maryland, a little bit different process and fortune was in Maryland. So in Maryland, 
they looked up and they saw that people were indentured, they were actually um, now enslaving their white indentured servants and forcing them to have mixed race children so that they could be enslaved in perpetuity. Well, but where did the white, where did the race get invented? Because I think, and then not like the real kind of uh, default position, somebody just looks at their skin and they go, well, I'm black or I'm white. Yeah, what no, do you mean it was invented? not until race was invented, right? right. So until tell, that tell time. Because these laws of slavery laws and who's, <laughs> counts as a slave and who doesn't was also the construction of actual the racial categories as well so where oh exactly come from? in fact in these very laws 1660 you actually have the very first race laws mm. and also the first gender based laws mm-hmm. on this land and the first citizenship laws on this land so from the from the very genesis of race it has always been intertwined with the question of citizenship and the question of gender. Why? Because race, gender, and citizenship are all constructs of hierarchy to yeah. determine who has the, the ability to exercise dominion on this land, to exercise rulership over this land. And so race was created in order to do one thing, to, to determine who has the ability to, to exercise um, rule on the land. And you can trace it back to Plato. In 360 BC, he writes the Republic and he's trying to figure out how does the Republic work? And he says, there's this thing called race. Race is the different metals that different people groups are made of. And he says, you know, gold people are meant to serve society in this way. Silver people are meant to serve society in this way and so on. Mm -hmm. His acolyte, Aristotle, came through about 10 years later and said, there's this thing called hierarchy. And he said, um, if if a people group has been conquered, they have proven that they were created to be enslaved. Hello. And so then you march forward about a thousand years and you get Pope Nicholas IV, or sorry, Pope Nicholas V. And Pope Nicholas V says um, to an explorer, family friend who comes to him for a blessing, says, hey, yeah, I'll give you a blessing and I'll do you one better. If you come across land that is not civilized and Christian, then you have the right to claim that land for the throne and enslave its people. Where did he get that from? He did not get that from scripture. He got that from Aristotle. Mm. Got it from Aristotle. Aristotle is the one who said, if a people group has been conquered, then it it has shown itself to be um, created to be enslaved. That, he was not, the Pope created the doctrine of discovery based not on scripture, but on Aristotle. And we have to understand that. If we can understand that, then we can extricate ourselves from that, um, that, that false narrative, that, that, that bad theology. And, and in uh, terms and of, there. I mean, it, it's so interesting because you're making that connection between it's not actually skin color, it's who's in power. And I was yes. reminded that Benjamin Franklin made a, an interesting quote once. Where yes. He said, he said oh, we, we don't like these Germans coming over yes. here. They don't share our skin. They don't share our, he said, they don't share our race. They don't share our value. Yeah. He said, they're, they're, they're ruddy. Like they're, they're going to, they're going to actually, he said, they're going to muddy the race. <laughs> right. And, and then you think, oh yeah, yeah. right. Um, uh, throughout American history, Irish people weren't considered white. Italians weren't considered white. It's kind of like whatever group is in power. Well, let me just say, there's something very specific to that. There's something very specific about that. It has to do with the law. So when you go forward, you know, you go from the from the Pope, you go to Carl Linnaeus. Carl Linnaeus was the botanist who discovered kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species, right? And, and he said, oh, well, if that works with fauna, certainly it should work with humanity. And he tried it out and it stuck. And he said, okay, who are we going to put on top? Oh, we'll put ourselves on top. White Europeanus. 
That's very scientific, isn't it, right? So, and then red, uh, red Americanus and yellow Asiaticus under that, and on the bottom was black Africanus. And then it was only 40 years from that till the three-fifths compromise, where now it's embedded in constitutional law. That early 1650-something ruling with Elizabeth Key, where they said, Elizabeth Key has won her freedom because she proved she is, she is, uh, worthy of citizenship and protection of the law because her father is a British citizen. And then in 1662, they changed it. That was the first time in 1662 where they legislated race and they determined that race will determine slave or free status. Up to that point, it was all indenture and it was everybody. White people could be indentured. Indians were indentured. Black people were indentured. And it was not, it was limited. There was a time stamp on it. It was, it, it, you had, you were able to be set free enslavement now was forever and it was in perpetuity not just you but your your kin that came after you your descendants in perpetuity so you would think now when you know the revolutionary war happens that now they're going to they're going to start from year 0 they're going to stop they're going to they're going to say no we don't want to do this anymore and there were those who fought for that but they lost they lost the battle and ben franklin won so Ben Franklin was actually arguing that America should be set up as a, as, a, as a white colony, as a colony that actually protected the white race because everybody else is growing so much, right? So in the very first census document in American history, 1790, the only race that is listed, there's only one race listed and it's white. And whiteness then serves to unite people who have been warring against each other on the continent of Europe into this one, quote, race that now will work for each other. It, it creates an equalizing power for people of, people of European descent on this land. And it creates a hierarchy and a permanent um, source of free labor because the only other, only other race listed is slave <laughs> on that wow. first census. Wow, yeah, right. it's white and then slave. White or slave. Then the next next census, it changes a little bit till finally now we have like 50 races that are possible for you to fill in on our on our and most of them are not races, they're they're nationalities or they're ethnic groups. So that's the that's how race was created and crafted and constructed. And throughout the entire 19th century, the 1800s, you have people entering into America and fighting their way all the way to the Supreme Court to, to fight to say that they are white. They have to prove legally that they are white. Germans had to prove that they were white. Armenians had to prove that they were white. The last cases are in the 1920s where you have people of Pakistani descent who are and Japanese descent who are arguing before the Supreme Court that they are Caucasian, they are white. And the Supreme Court slaps them back down to their, their station saying, well, we didn't mean it that way, right? And Pakistanis are actually Caucasian. And yet they were like, uh, but we didn't mean it that way. We meant white, <laughs> which is, it's, it's illogical. It's, it's not based in anything, but a determination of who was created and authorized to rule on this land. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's enshrined in, it's a legal fiction. Yeah, it's, it's a way to put anyway. it. Yes, <laughs> but you didn't. I mean, Lisa didn't grow up knowing about all this. I mean, what what was the kind of what was your uh, view of all this? I mean, when did you start thinking about fortune or about mm. the legal fiction of race? Or I mean, when when did that start to enter into your consciousness? 
Well, I mean, I started thinking about race very early on. I didn't understand the construct of it until in the last maybe 15, 20 years. But early, when I was seven years old, my mom and dad sat me down in front of Roots, you know, the miniseries, and made me watch every single episode. And every time it came on after that, I got sat down in front of the TV and I watched that. So I watched Roots probably about 20 times. <laughs> so I knew about race. I knew about the reality that we were not from here. We we're from somewhere else. But I also knew that, as my mom and dad said, that they can't trace that, that there are no records that, you know, and we just, back in the 70s and 80s, we had no access to that stuff. And there was very little research actually on, um, for African studies wasn't even a category in the universities. Um, so Alex Haley's Roots was actually breakthrough in that way and created the category that then now we have, you know, whole schools that are dedicated to this. I began my genealogical research on my family. The earliest version of it was a family tree scribbled on the back of, of a show poster that I was working on. I was working off Broadway as an assistant stage manager and, and also kind of creating my own little theater company I on the side. ASM. I was an ASM. Yeah. Oh, oh really? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> How fun. Yeah. They were, we're a particular kind of person, right? We yeah. love order. And at the same time, I actually was, a, was an artist, um, uh, an actor before yeah. that and at heart, right? So but anyway, so I'm an actor. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Working in the lighting booth <laughs> for money. Yeah. Just so, resenting all the actors up in the stage. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Envying them every single night. Right. Like I wish that was me. Right. So but I was sitting in the lighting booth and on the I don't know if I was on the phone in the lighting booth or I was in the lighting booth writing down the family tree as I remembered it from my mom, you know, it's a little bit fuzzy. So maybe I was on the phone with my mom and then I, I somehow I was in lighting booth at one point and I know I was on my phone with my mom, but I wouldn't have been in both places at the same time. Anyway, I was talked with my mom and she was sharing with me, you know, going back as far as she could go, which was our second great grandfather, my second great grandfather, her great grandfather. She didn't have real names. Like she didn't, all she knew were like dates. So all, all I have is like, grandpop, great grandpop, you know, dates of, of when they would have been around the time when they would have born been born. And that was the beginning. And that was around 1990, 1991. And then since then, um, it's just been a real journey. I wrote a play called And Push the Wind Down, which was based on the, the, the mythology in my story around how my family had walked the trail of tears. And I still to this day, day don't really know the specifics of it, but I've done enough research to know Native identity within Black families is something of, of a mystery and breadcrumbs. There's breadcrumbs for us. There's stories. There's more mystery than ever and than anything because intentionally the way that the American government fought against uh, Indigenous people to begin with, and actually at every stamp, was to erase them. The way that they wanted them to, they wanted to erase them. And the way that they chose to, one way they chose to erase them was through identity. So identity politics um, for the Cherokees, if they did not complete the Cherokee Trail of Tears, then they could not be seen as Cherokee. They would no longer be counted as, as one of the people, even though they were, but they, they escaped or they, they, they might have like our ancestors, I believe they ran up into the hills and escaped and in Kentucky and, and just hid out because the area that they lived in was an area that the Trail of Tears went through. And they end up, they're not on the census anywhere to be found before 1850. And the, the Trail of Tears went through there in 1838, 1839. So they appear in 1850 and they're listed as white, which is really interesting. Um, 
and you're going, well, how are they? Or actually, no, mulatto and white. And you're going, how, how is that? Well, they would never have listed themselves as Indian because if they did, they would have been removed. Like they were trying to, they were trying to hide their identity. And so they did that for generations. But there are some, some telltale things, you know, on, on military documents later where you see that um, Henry Lawrence, my two times great grandfather, is actually listed as dark complexion. And yet he also lists himself as German. And you're going, well, <laughs> maybe he was half German. Maybe his, you know, maybe there was some German in him. I don't know. The reality is there are, there are more questions than there are answers. And the thing that I found while researching that section is that that was intentional. And that's the point. The point is colonization twisted identity and, and corrupted the way that identity is determined to the point where it's literally um, just been pulverized. Is this what broke the, I mean, you talk about breaking the world, but is this yes. what you mean? Yes, it's part of what I mean. I mean, another part of what I mean is the fact that fortune was indentured for 31 years. And you know, now I do my DNA and I find that the families that indentured her, I find their surnames in my DNA. I, I find them as matches in my DNA. Well, that means that her children, whose fathers were never listed, were likely the product of rape inside of indenturing homes. Um, and what did that do to her? What did that do to um, her prospects? And because they were, they were illegitimate children, they too were indentured for 31 and 21 years. So three generations of her line were indentured because of these race laws. They were, they were conditioned to be servants for their lives, but yet they found ways to, to resist, right? So I, I see it there. I see it in Leah, who is also one of the other, one of the other stories that are told in, um, in the roots part of the book, the first three chapters of the book. Um, Leah was enslaved in South Carolina and um, the port of South Carolina really um, saw the entry of about 60% of the African ancestors of people of African descent in America today. 60% of our ancestors came through the port of South Carolina. Now, interestingly, Leah did not come through that port. She actually was brought down from Virginia. We originally came into this country in Virginia, her line. But she came into a space that was, I mean, utterly, utterly oppressed. The, the child um, uh, mortality rate for enslaved children at that time was like one year down in the, in the lowlands um, of, of Charleston and South Carolina and up in the area where she lived. Um, they, were not, they were not expected to live past 16. Like they would literally die by 16. That was the expected time they would die. So it was brutal and she lost so much. Um, we're told that she had 17 children, but only 12 of them can be found. Five were likely lost to slavery, sold into the deeper South, Georgia, um, Alabama. We have DNA connections there. And so likely that's probably where she ended up, um, her children ended up being sold. So she lost so much and her children lost even after slavery because of racial hierarchy and subjugation. There were no hospitals for black people. So my, my two times great grandmother, Leah's daughter died in childbirth because there was no hospital for her. Only the midwife would have been there and heard her last scream as her child was born into the world. 
the cost? What's the cost of that? Like, what's the human cost? Well, I was just going to say, like, by by zeroing in, you're telling these women's stories, and the and by telling their individual stories, then you realize this happened to millions. This just over and oh. over and over again. I mean, okay, I met Toni Morrison once. I I had I actually sat at a I sat next to her at a dinner. Okay. And I knew I was going to, Lisa. So here I am. I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Some, some, uh, I have goodwill. I'm just some goodwill, dumb white guy. And I'm going to sit next to Toni Morrison, like whose books kind of wrecked my world. And she has all the moral authority. She has the sharp, fierce intelligence. Yeah. Okay. What am I going to say to Toni Morrison? What can I possibly bring to the table? And then, <laughs> Lisa, I start reading your book, okay? Oh. And I'm thinking, oh crap, it's happening again. Oh no! I'm gonna oh, have to talk. Gosh. I'm gonna have wow. to talk. And then I read this. Can I read a, a, a paragraph out of your own book? Sure. Right. Thank okay. You. And this is where I was like, oh no, it's all happening again. Oh. Page 158. One evening in the days leading up to the 2020 election, mm. I asked myself, when was the last time men of European descent went anywhere in the world and did not think to themselves, I should control this space? The question haunted me. I could not remember a time I kept tracing back before the Mayflower, before the slave trade, before Rome, before Greece, almost 3,000 years. Not since before the Greek Empire, before 800 BCE, have men of European descent gone anywhere in the world and not sought to dominate it. And I was like, oh no, what can I bring to this conversation <laughs> with Lisa Sharon Harper? Because she's right. Mm. All the moral authority is yours. All the, mm. the, the facts are yours. Mm. We, I'm, you know, white guy, we broke mm. the world, right? Yeah. What do we do? Well, well, how do we that, repair? Can we repair? Yes, you can. Okay. Um, repair is simply repentance. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. But it's not just individual repentance. And I think that that's where we've gone wrong. Yeah. Over the last, you know, 50, 60 years, as we've been talking about rep reconciliation and, you know, within the church, we have not understood that there were policy decisions that were made. Mm -hmm. There were decisions about the law and about, about policy and about the norms, the practices we would actually, we would hold to, the cultural practices we would hold to that were formed in ways that privileged white men that not just privileged, I hate to use that word because you know people fight back against, which is crazy to fight back against that word, but let's just say that that created a world where white men would flourish, period. That's what it means. And and and, and whatever happened to anybody else, you know, whatever. And if they ended up being dead because of it, okay, whatever. If they ended up, you know, just being subjugated a little bit because of that, well then whatever, because that's not really what it was about, protecting the power of white men. Explicitly, I mean, it was explicit. So like, for example, the 1770, 1790 immigration law, very first immigration law in the United States of America. And what does that immigration law says? It's constitutional, by the way, it's, by, it's done by the first Congress. It says the only people who, should, who will be able to be naturalized citizens in the United States of America are white men of good character, which basically meant Christian. And so well, what, why would they do that? Well, because to be a citizen, is to have the right to vote. And to have the right to vote is to have the right to shape the world. And they didn't want anybody else shaping the world except for them. 
So I think that really what it comes down to is it comes down to fear. Fear that to lose control is to lose wellness. To lose control is to lose your fortune. But that is not necessarily true. I mean, I think, I think that what God calls us to do is to have faith in God, to know that God is the one who is the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. hills. God is the one who has got all of our backs. And so if we were to, if you, white men, were to step down off of the hierarchy, the, the scaffolding of human hierarchy that you have erected for yourselves, and you were to join hands with the rest of human creation and simply be human, not war for supremacy with God, okay? Not try to define the whole world. Only God should be able to define the world. Um, but yet people of European descent have been trying to define it since Greece. And so what would it look like? What would it look like for you to lay down your arms against God and, and, and simply be human? and allow others to rise full into the image of God within them, meaning their inherent call and capacity to exercise stewardship of the world, to make decisions that impact the world through votes, through money, through, um, through ownership of, of businesses and land and an equal partnership in the crafting of our culture together. Boy, I mean, wouldn't that be amazing if we could all work together in the crafting of this world? That is what God desires. That's what God tells us and shows us on the page one of the Bible when God says that all humanity is made in God's image, all of humanity, and called to exercise dominion in the world. From time to time, I'm asked to endorse or promote books do not always accept these requests, but this time I am very happy to do all I can to get a copy of Lisa Sharon Harper's book, Fortune, into your hands. If you pre-order Fortune by February the 7th, you will get an audiobook version read by the author for free. This is the book friend of the show Shane Claiborne says is pure fire from beginning to end, and I couldn't agree more. Visit lisasharonharper.com forward slash fortune for all the information you need. It's, it's, it is fear of losing control. And what that means, the loss of control means death, means destruction that has led, I believe, white Europeans, people of European descent, to try to control the world and as a result, control everybody and everything. And I think there's like a fear, like I'm noticing this, the kind of American white Christianity has lost its tiny mind or the American white people. And, yes. and, and it's like they're fearing that they are now gonna be treated the way they've been treating everybody. They cannot even imagine a world where domination is not the, the core of how the world operates. They can't imagine it, which is scary, which basically means that when they rule and they, we just saw four years of it, they dominate. That's, that's how they rule because it is the only, only way in their imagination. But there is another way. 
And we see that way in the person of Jesus. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a brown guy who was under the thumb of Roman imperial power for a long time. And he had a pretty good way. Yeah. And he didn't dominate his enemies, even though he was being dominated. So, yes. I mean, Zacchaeus spent one afternoon with him, right? Like he went to Zacchaeus and said, hey, I want to hang out with you, the tax collector. And, you know, he comes back and what does he do? He gives reparations. Yeah. That's talk about rep- that, I mean, the, the whole yeah. latter half of your book is, is about reparations. Mm-hmm. About repair. I mean, um, yeah. The last third of the book is about how do we repair what, ro- what race broke in the world. And one of those, part of repair is reparation it's, and restitution. It's mm-hmm. to repair what was broken and restore what was taken. And well, what do you mean? What, what do we mean by reparation? Can we spell that out a little bit? Or Sure. I mean, reparation is very simple. It's, it, it literally means to repair what was broken. And so, you know, for me, and I think the main point of that chapter is that repair must be a part of the, we must repair through the process as much as we are preparing through the end result. You can't get to the end result um, and, and have repair if you've done it in a way that continues um, the sin in, that, that broke us in the first place. And, and I trace that sin back to the moment when the first explorers landed on, you know, the South African Cape or the the the, um, the Western world, the North American continent before it was called North America, um, Turtle Island, and they they looked at the people and said, "You are not created to rule here. I am." That is where that's what broke the world. That was the moment that broke the world, and from that point forward, because what they did was they did not recognize the image of God in them. They did not recognize their divine call to exercise dominion on the land, to steward the land, to protect the land, to cultivate the land, to make decisions um, that impact the land, impact the world. And so they, they snatched that and, and withheld it and, and pulverized the people in the process. And so what does repair require? Repair requires what David did with the Gibeonites um, in, uh, in 2 Samuel. David is approached, David is actually praying to God and saying, God, why do we have a a famine in the land? What's going on with this famine, God? And David, you know, is the king and he's like, I didn't do anything. What's going on? And David, and and then he has, there's a knock at the door. Knock, knock, knock. I love the scripture. (laughs) Like there's really good storytellers, right? So knock, knock, knock. And and it's the Gibeonites. And they're like, "Uh, King David, uh, we have a bone to pick with you. And so, you know, he's like, well, what, what happened? He goes, well, Saul, who was the king before you, you know, he tried killing all of our people. He committed genocide. And, and so we, you know, we want reparation. We want, we want, something needs to be done about this. And you know what he does? David could have done several things. David could have said, okay, 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 I'll get back to you. And just never gotten back to them, which is what America has done to people of African descent. He could have said, okay, let me gather my, my, my men and we will figure out what we can do for you, right? But see, even in that, that does not take responsibility for the fact that the reality is you don't even really have the, the divine right to figure out what we can do for you. That is, that is, yeah, that is a, a process that dominates mm-hmm. even as you say you're repairing, right? Because you are now imposing your will on, um, on, on the, the process of repair. No, what does David do? David says to the Gibeonites, what do you say that we should do so that things will be made well for you? And then they say it, and it is costly. But he does it without one question.
question. He does not even ask one question. And what is God's response? God's response is to lift the famine from the land. What does that look like in terms of legal, uh, legally, or in terms of the framework in America? And then I want to talk about Europe. Where I yeah, am as well, well what, yes. What would that look like? I mean, yeah, what uh, it would look like yeah. is it would look like a commission. It would look like HR yeah. 40 being passed in America. It would look like a commission to, to investigate what reparation would require, repair yeah. would require within the African-American community. Yeah. Um, it would look like following the vision and the goal, asking the leaders of the African-American community in America, what do you say we should do? And then doing it. So HR 40 is a, is a, a bill that actually, it, all it says is we will study what reparation would require. And then there's a TRHT commission, which is the Truth and Racial Healing and Transformation Commission that was put forward by Barbara Lee in Congress. Um, and that is actually saying, we will, we will put together a truth commission and we will, we will tell the truth. We will gather all of the experts that will be able to tell us what actually happened on this land. And we will have then we will then turn to the, the we will have a commission or turn to the one in, under HR 40 that says, how do we repair what this has all broken in the world? And then we will do it. That's what, that's what reparations would require. It requires following the lead of the ones who were broken because they know more than anybody else what repair will take. So, all right, I'm just going to say it outright. That's not going to happen. I look no, at the world. You it know? will happen. Okay. It will happen. Tell me. It will happen. Tell me how. Because I look at like America, white America right now, and mm -hmm. I see fierce debate, even talking about critical race theory and all that. It's just impossible, right? right? No, but critical race theory is, is a major buzzword within about 30% of the electorate. Right. Do you hear that? 30% yeah, right. okay. of the electorate, not 70% of the gotcha. electorate. Yeah. It's major and they're trying to keep that 30 under their thumb so that they can keep that base in check but it's not it's actually not a major big thing among 70 percent of the people and instead i mean like a good 60 percent are saying how do we fix this because we just had a new, another school shooting yesterday yesterday another school shooting every day there's a mass there's a mass, every day there's a mass shooting in america every single day of the year why because of the gun lobby why is the gun lobby so strong? If the gun lobby is so strong because a contingent of, interestingly enough, white evangelicals and politicos back in 1980s decided they were gonna organize to try to maintain white male domination and power, but they were gonna do it by framing the issue, not in terms of race anymore because they lost their battle in the Supreme Court in 1983 with Bob Jones University versus the USA when they lost their tax exempt status because they were trying to maintain a white only campus. Um, well, they, they realized then in 1983, they can't fight this battle through race anymore. It's not gauche, it's not, you know, it's not the way to do it. So instead, now we're gonna fight the same battle. We're gonna, we're kind of gonna try to do the same thing to win that battle, but now couch it under the framework of abortion and couch it under the framework of gun rights, you know, the right to individual liberty, to religious liberty. And we're gonna, we're gonna get all those white people who feel like they're outsiders, people who don't live in cities, people who live in rural areas. We're gonna get them all fired up about this. We're gonna get white evangelicals fired up about this, make them feel afraid 
for their, for their, that their faith is going to be taken from them. And we're going to manipulate them into right, voting against their own interests, which is exactly what they've done. Exactly what they've so done. So how do we break that though, Sharon? Because I, Through I narrative don't... reconciliation. Yeah, okay. I said, I 100% want to see this happen, but all I see is white evangelicals getting worse. I mean, more of them voted for yeah. Trump the second time around than left. Like, oh, well, yes, but that's only because more people voted the second time around. Right. Um, there, was a, there was less of, what do you call it, a lower percentage of uh, white evangelicals voted for Trump this time of year, the right time around, than any presidency um, since Bush won. So, so you are I seeing think, some change here. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely like seeing change. Absolutely. But, you know, it depends on it depends on how you look at those numbers. I think that when you look when what, what is the hope for me is the fact that, yes, they can spin, but we also have our own family stories. So as people of European descent begin to go deep into their own family stories, they will subvert that meta narrative. They will find out the fact that, yes, their families, too, were subjugated in Europe. Their families too were a part of this issue, and they have they have a role to play in the fixing of it. Tell me, let's talk about Europe a bit because it's all very well saying American yeah. government needs to do these things, but it, of course, mm -hmm. when the white people landed on the on the south coast and looked at brown and black people and said, "Yeah, we'll have some of that, please," they weren't Americans; they were English, That's right? They were French English or Spanish, or British, right? Exactly. So where does I Europe? Think what 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 does your role what do they play what do we play in this you got rich off of us off of mm -hmm. black bodies yes you got rich off of brown bodies in india you got rich and you colonized our lands and charged or or brought got up a bunch of debt and then when you left you left that debt to the nations that you left behind um, repair of what colonization broke in the world. And race was really only a modus operandi to colonize. Ultimately, that's really what it was used for. It was used to divide and conquer the people. So what would it look like for Portugal and for, um, I mean, for Portugal to give reparations to Brazil? What would it look like for for um, Britain and the UK to give reparations to Jamaica and to um, St. Kitts and the British uh, Virgin Islands. What would that look like? It would look like the forgiveness of debt. It would look like, and it also would look like the listening to and abiding by and saying yes to the calls for reparations that are now rising throughout the Caribbean. In fact, the Caribbean nations have actually come together and put forward um, a, a call and a plan for reparations into um, British Parliament. And we shall see, I think maybe the EU as well. I'm not sure, we shall see what their response is. But this is actually something that is moving forward. And uh, the British people need to, need to understand that you have, um, you have something to do with this. And, and it's not only to people of color. I mean, I think that when we look at it, and we talk about Britain, we're talking about Ireland as well. We're talking about Northern Ireland. I mean, I was honestly flabbergasted to see how connected the histories are in America. Um, to know that the McGee family, uh, Maudlin McGee, she was um, the wife of George McGee. George McGee was an Ulster Scot. In other words, he was in the Ulster region. 
And he came to America to escape what he would have called persecution, but actually it wasn't persecution. The Irish were rising up saying, get out of our land. The Scots were, were put there in order to help colonize Ireland for, you know, in the plantation era for, for England. And so, so where did they go? They came to America and what did they end up doing? The Ulster Scots ended up being the bulk of the people who owned plantations and slaves in the South. So the McGee's became the McGee's down in, um, in Georgia. They moved all the way through Alabama, Louisiana, all the way to Texas. And they became some of the greatest slaveholders in the South. But that, that has its roots in the plantation history in Ireland. So there's some reparations that need to be happening there yeah. as well. You also, you don't actually end your book with reparations. You actually end with a really fascinating chapter on forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, because I started, and I, that wasn't the plan, actually. I had a whole other thing I was going to do at the end, but I started asking the question, how do we get to the beloved community? How do we get, what is the goal of all of this? Is the goal of all of this just reparations? No, the goal is the beloved community. The goal is what Dr. King called us to. The goal is the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the rule of God, um, or at least at least something that, that approximates it on earth, like that, that mirrors it, that reflects the will of God, which is that all should flourish. So how do we get to a world where all flourish, where all are protected, where all are set up to thrive and, um, and to exercise stewardship of the world? But we don't do that just by reparations. That's, that can't be the end. We have to then push for the beloved community. But in order to get to the beloved community, we have to deal with two things that are, are critical and usually not, not talked about. One, those things that can't be repaired, that can't be restored. The millions of people who died in the Middle Passage who still to this day lie at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. The millions of Africans who died um, in the midst of, uh, of enslavement in America. The nearly 100 million native people who died from the first contact with, with Europeans in South America and Central America, all the way to the last Indian removals where they literally started with a hundred million indigenous people between all of the Americas, all of the West. And they, they started the 20th century with 100,000 left between all of North America and South America and Central America. They will never come back. There's no restoration there. You can't get that back. So there has to be, in order to get to the beloved community, we have to engage in the process of forgiveness. And that process is actually not for the sake of the oppressor. It's for the sake and the healing of the oppressed. Because until we are able to cut the tie, and that's what forgiveness does, not until we're able to, to, to cut the tie between us and the oppressor, to no longer say, you owe me, you owe me, you need to, you need to owe, you owe, things they cannot give, things they cannot restore. It's not possible. We will then be tied and in a state of need forever unless we cut that tie, unless we release them and then turn to God because God is the one with cattle on a thousand hills. God is the 
creator of all things. And God does have the capacity to move mountains. And it may take seven generations, but it will happen because God has the ability to do it. But we cannot demand what humans can't give. That does not to say we don't get reparations. Remember reparations chapter came before forgiveness. We do do, we repair what is possible to be repaired. And then we forgive the rest. We release, we release the rest. And in other words, release ourselves from needing to get that from somebody else and instead stand full into the image of God within us, exercise agency to be able to restore our communities, to, to do what is right, to run for office and determine the policies that are set, to do it right this time in a way that actually shapes the beloved community. We talk about politics a lot on this podcast. I, I just thought now, like, are, are, you, are, are there any political movements or leaders coming up through the ranks that you, you have an eye on, like in a positive way that you think are, are worth aligning with? Oh, absolutely. I mean, here's the thing. I'm not a nonprofit, so I have the ability to, to, to say what I think in terms of politics, and I love that. Um, Freedom Road is an LLC. We're, we're, um, we're a company. We're a business. And so, um, you know, Stacey Abrams' work down in Georgia, as well as Raphael Warnock. I mean, Raphael Warnock is actually a friend and senior fellow in the Auburn Theological Seminary. And I know that the work that they do, they do because of the roots of their faith and the faith of their ancestors. And um, there's no way, there's just no way that you can enter into the struggle that people of African descent have had to struggle through for the last 500 years and not have faith. Faith is what has actually sustained us. Faith is what has given us resilience strategies and rebellion strategies over the course of these 500 years. And I see the work of Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock and others um, that are in this fight. I mean, all the way to Nancy Pelosi, quite honestly. Nancy Pelosi is a devout Catholic. And I think about even, you know, Joe Biden, again, a devout Catholic. These are, these are people of deep faith whose policies are largely guided by their faith. Now, we're also talking about the realm of politics, so you're never going to get perfect, right? Politics is... Um, it's not about establishing the kingdom yeah. of God on earth. And Politics devout Catholics is about <laughs> haven't exactly solved all of our problems, have they? No, I mean, yeah. and there's there's good and bad, right? Yeah. But in these cases, these cases, yeah, right. I don't I can't talk for all devout Catholics, but I can yeah. say, in Joe Biden's case, and also in Nancy Pelosi's case, when you're talking about Catholics, yeah. um, their their faith really has led them to try to legislate toward the beloved community. Yeah. They really have, and Stacey Abrams. Mm. Uh, yeah. Like she's just a true organizer. She has yeah. done the work. She has gone door to door. She's listening. She's doing the truth, listening, truth seeking, truth telling that needs to be done in the halls of government. And then she's running to change, to change the things um, that were broken, to fix the things that were broken by the constructs of race and other constructs of hierarchy down in the American South. And the American South for us in the United States has always been um, a place that has, you know, as it goes, the rest of the country goes because you can only go so far as, you know, the people who want to move the slowest. And, you know, unsurprisingly, it has been the American South that has tried to drag America back into a time of white male domination. And she ain't having it. And I just love that. I love that. <laughs> 
you also you were you were preaching in the church in Charlottesville when the tiki torch white power people. Yes. Can you tell me? About, I've got you right here. I got to hear this story. I what what was the occasion? Why were you speaking in the church? Well, the the Unite the Right rally was going to be the next day, and so yeah. the day before there was a tiki torch rally over on the campus, which everybody saw the pictures and and all the major newspapers and magazines. Um, well, on the campus across the street at St. Paul's Chapel, there was a, a mass meeting going on because there yeah. was going to be a big march and uh, and demonstration against the Unite the Right rally happening the next day. So I was asked to come by my friends who were the organizers of the event to come and join Tracy Blackman and um, Cornell West and, uh, and and several others, Ryan McLaren, others, as we preached in order to um, set the agenda for the next day, set the course for the next day. And I remember what I, what I preached was I preached, I said, look, you know, it's dark. It's dark in America. We're looking outside our doors and we see tiki torches out there. Not that we, I didn't know that they were surrounding the building. I just knew they were across the street at a rally. But I know that it is possible. It's possible for us to live another way in the world. And I know that because of the first page of the Bible. I know that because the context of the writing of the first page of the Bible was colonization. It was the Babylonian exile. It was slavery and enslavement. And in that context, the writers of Genesis 1 um, proclaimed that God, the supreme God, they were made sure to say, the God who is above all things hovers over the deep. The spirit of God hovers over the deep. And that hovering was not just a which is what I used to think of it, like a, a spirit swishing over the deep. It was more like a chicken who broods over her eggs, her eggs, just you know, waiting to give birth, hovering over the eggs, brooding over the eggs. And that's what God did in the darkness. And then God said, let there be light. And light was born into the darkness and cut the darkness. And that is what our God does. So I can't look at the history of my ancestors. I can't look at the history of Fortune and Leah and Lizzie and Sharon and Henry and Harriet. I can't look at the degradation that they went through, that Martha went through, that Annie went through um, as she died in the dirt or died because of what happened in the dirt um, and under, under white patriarchy in, in South Carolina. I can't look at their lives and not know that God, God intervened. God made it so that an institution that nobody thought could end, the transatlantic slave trade, ended. An institution that nobody thought could end, Jim Crow, after 90 years, ended. Okay, you've done it. And now, you've convinced now me. we have. <laughs> it can now, change. It can I'm sorry, change. Go on. No, yes. you convinced me. You, yes. I, I, even while you're talking, Lisa, I'm thinking, my hopelessness about, about the change is itself probably a product of colonial patriarchal thinking. Kind of like, yes. if it doesn't happen, then it, if it doesn't happen my way, then it can't happen. That's right. And if it doesn't happen in your time, it doesn't, can't happen. Yeah. But and you've convinced remember. me. I, yeah. I, I, res, I rescind my, my lack of hope that things will ever change. Amen. You're absolutely right. Amen. It will yeah. happen. Yeah, it can. It, and the it question will. is not whether it'll happen. It the does. question is whose side will we be on when it happens? Exactly. Yeah. Where are you going to be when the change be? comes? Where are you going to be? Yes. Yeah. I, 
I've absolutely loved talking with you. And where can where, the book is called Fortune? When does it come out? When can we? I've got a, a pre-released copy, which I'm very proud to. Oh, have. fabulous! When well, does it come out properly? Pre, yeah, folks can pre-order now. So you know, pre-order now. Just go to lisasharonharper.com. Um, and that's where you can actually find, you can, you can find any of the different ways that you order your books. You'll, you can be connected to them there. Um, or, you know, obviously Amazon's good, but just pre-order the book, pre-order yeah, the book. That helps it, authors. It, it does. It's actually very important. Um, but February 8th is when it will drop into the world. And we're going to be having something called Black Fortune Month which will feature a, a global book study on fortune. So you'll be able to tap into our resources to study the book for yourself uh, along with our community. And then also weekly events around the book. And it will all culminate in days of action on Capitol Hill to push for HR 40 and TRHT, push for reparation and truth telling. Oh, I'm gonna be following this story with great interest. Okay, great. I love it. <laughs> Thank, Thank you, you, Lisa, for coming on the program. And I, I really bless you and, and, and just look forward with hope to all that's going to happen. Thank you, Stephen. God bless you too. Bye. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.